Please join me in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this book. Thank you that we have your word. Thank you that from the fullness of Christ, you've given us grace upon grace. Lord, as I pray now, I pray that you would help me, that your Holy Spirit would guide my words, that you would open all of our hearts to your truth. Come and save us, O Lord, for I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you're visiting this morning, I welcome you. I'm Mike, the senior pastor, and uh, I'll give you a brief uh, snippet of our church's history. A number of years ago, we went through a process of renaming our church. We were then going by New Grace Church, and it was an interesting process because something emerged from that, uh, two things actually. One, uh, that we really wanted to identify with the Anglican movement, and we're wanting to put that on our sign. And the other was that grace wasn't just a name, like Southern gracious hospitality or something, it was, it was core to our identity. And I'm grateful for that process because not only is grace a theological concept that's really important, but people come to this church, I hear this testimony over and over again, and they find grace. They find grace in the sense of being able to be a sinner, knowing that they're broken, coming in the presence of a holy God and feeling his presence and his forgiveness in Christ. They also feel it from you. If you're a church member, I praise God for you because you are a grace-filled people and extend that to others. So this morning, if you haven't picked up the theme in all of the readings in the psalm, grace is my focus, not the church, the concept, the important truth. And my main point is that our Lord, God, is full of grace. He is full of grace. So I want us to understand what that means. And we're real close to the end of our sermon series on uh, being occupied with God's greatness. I think we have two more, and then we start into Advent, and we'll focus on something slightly different, although it'll still be God, I promise you. But for this, for that, that's that header of the sermon, occupied with greatness, we've only got a couple more. So today, my main point is that God is full of grace. Now, my text is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So if you want to get a pew Bible and turn there, it's always helpful to look at God's Word printed in black and white. I want to preach what His Word says, not just what I think. We need to hear from the Lord. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is one of the most concise definitions of good news. What is packed into these 10 verses is so worthwhile. It's, we should spend a lot of time here. Every time I come back to it, something in my soul starts to kind of resonate in harmony with it. I love what's in there. It's exciting. Now, let me give you the context. Um, Ephesians is short. It's like six, it's it's not like, it is six chapters long, and it could be seen as him, the Apostle Paul, trying to concisely take what he wrote in Romans and give it instead of 16 chapters in six chapters. It's balanced very well. The first three deal entirely with Um, indicatives, which is an English grammatical term for statements of what is. And then the last three chapters are imperatives, commands, what to do. So our response always comes out of God's initiative in saving us. Our works don't save us. God saves us and then brings forth work in our life. So the first three chapters are about what God has done and who he is. And the last three are about what therefore we should do with that. Chapter 2 is right in the middle of it, and the Apostle Paul, in the first chapter, verse 19, has prayed this for the church in Ephesus. He said, um, he's giving thanks because he's heard of the faith that's in this church, and he prays that they would know, in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. Now, let me clarify what that power is not. You see, in Ephesus, if you know 
the book of Acts, in chapter 19, the Apostle Paul goes to the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and there he finds some people who have been influenced by John the Baptist. They were followers of John the Baptist. They were actually baptized in the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist had. But when Paul meets them, he says, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And they don't even know there's a Holy Spirit. He shares more of the truth of God to them about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, and then they receive the Holy Spirit very powerfully. They pray out in tongues, they extol God, they give glory to God. It's clear that the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And it tells us that Paul spent three months in that city, both going to the synagogue to proclaim to the Jews, as well as teaching these Greek, these Gentiles, about the gospel. And it also tells us that God was doing mighty works through Paul, that he was healing people, or rather God was healing people through Paul, that uh, he was casting out demonic spirits from people. Even handkerchiefs that he had touched were being taken to people that were sick, and then when it touched them, they were being healed. That's pretty powerful. But I want to suggest it's not nearly as powerful as what this first part of chapter 2 describes. It describes a miracle. It describes the miracle of a spiritually dead person becoming alive in Christ, a resurrection of sorts, a, a new birth of a heart. And this section is bookended by the word walk. So in the very first two verses, Paul writes to the Gentiles, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And by verse 10, he says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So walk bookends this piece. Now there's two problems. One is that dead people don't know it until they're alive. And if you are alive in Christ right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if what I just said doesn't make sense, I hope you will listen up because you might be dead. I mean, it's, it's sort of funny, but it's not funny at all. It's frightening, actually. The spiritually dead people don't know they're spiritually dead. Now, I'm going to give you a spoil alert here. I'm going to ruin a movie for you. I'm actually going to give the twist at the end of a movie in an illustration. But I'm going to do it with two good reasons. One, you've had 19 years to see this movie, so it's not new. <laughs> and two, it's better watching it the second time. You watch the movie through once, and then the twist at the end happens, and then you actually have to go back and watch it a second time and see the brilliance of how it was filmed. It's the movie The Sixth Sense. It has Bruce Willis in it and Haley Joel Osment as the two main characters. It's, it was one of the movies that uh, that director that does all the scary movies, M. Night Shyamalan, however you say his last name, uh, it was the one that really broke him onto the mainstream as an incredible director. So in the movie, the presence of death is played all the way through. Bruce Willis is a child psychologist, and he's had a failed client. He just was not able to help this guy. And in the beginning of the movie, the guy shows up in his house and shoots him. Um, but it appears as though Bruce Willis recovers. And he goes about caring for another child who apparently sees dead people. And these dead people come to him trying to get help. It's a, I mean, this is a spooky movie, so I, I don't, you don't necessarily have to watch it. The concept is really important, though. All through the movie, the way it's filmed, Bruce Willis's character is interacting with people, but he's not really. He's actually dead. And he's trying to make amends with the fact that he failed that first child. And the second child, his ministry, so to speak, is to help dead people get where they need to get. And so part of it is Bruce needs to figure out he's actually dead. 
And by the end, when, he, when that hits home, he's shocked by it. But then he's able to communicate something, a message to his wife, and you, know, you start getting into divination and other stuff. That's not the point. The point is, you can walk through an entire movie like that thinking you're alive, and you're not. In this world, people walk through the world thinking that they're alive, and they're not. They're spiritually dead. The scripture here tells us this. In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So dead. He uses two words, the sins and the trespasses. So trespasses could pick up everything that you and I do that are sins of commission. We commit them. We, we actively do something that is wrong, immoral, bad. The other ones, sins of omission, are things that we should have done and didn't, neglect. The word translated sin there means missing the mark. Our life has missed the mark thoroughly. And it's not that we're actively doing anything in that type of sin. We're just missing the mark. We are out of line with what is good and true and who God is. So we are dead, spiritually dead as a result of that. Furthermore, we're slaves. He goes on and he says, we are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons, and you could fit in daughters, sons and daughters of disobedience. We are slaves to a ruler who has set up a a rival kingdom in this world, and we don't even know it. We're spiritually dead. We're slaves to Satan and his dominion. And then it gets worse. There's good news coming, I promise you. But it gets worse reading down through this. It says that in in verse 3, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. We are under God's condemnation. His wrath is against us. So we're spiritually dead. We're slaves to Satan and his dominion. And we're under condemnation from God. That is a heavy load to wrestle with. Just let that sink in for a minute. Just think about that. Now, if you were to have a conversation with somebody at work at the, you know, water cooler and said, hey, are you spiritually dead? Are you a slave? Are you under condemnation? No one says they are until they actually come alive and then they realize they were. No one is going to admit that because it leads us to the second problem. So the first problem is dead people don't know it until they're alive. The second problem is this. The dead look alive by some standards. So think about people who are at the peak of their athletic prowess. Their body is just ripped with muscle, lean muscle. They're strong. They win medals. They're Olympians. That can look really alive by a worldly standard. Or think about somebody who's incredibly brilliant an author, published, a prolific speaker, writer, uh, in the height of industry or government or some kind of leadership, their mind is incredible. That looks really alive. Or think of uh, actors and actresses. They're beautiful. They're really compelling on the screen. Their personality is just super attractive. They're good with acting and dialogue. That looks really alive. But it's not by this definition. And John Stott, one of my favorite authors, the the late John Stott, the Anglican uh, scholar and pastor in London, says this, they have no life in them, and you can tell it. Meaning you, if you're a Christian, you can tell it. He says, here's how you can tell it. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. They are deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God. 
no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people, and they are as unresponsive to God as a corpse. Now, you can spiritually discern that. You can look at somebody and and say, wow, despite appearances, they're actually spiritually dead. And then verse 4 comes, but God, but God. This is where it turns to the, the good side of this. You have to go through that harsh reality and then get to the place of, well, then what hope is there for me? Ah, but God. See, this is where the miracle comes in. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. See, I want you to notice something about this section. It is entirely descriptive of our condition and what God has done. There is no work for us in here, except at the end when he talks about works that God has even prepared for us. There is nothing that we do. Grace is an entirely undeserved gift. He's rich in mercy, which means, mercy means not getting what you deserve. Grace, though, is getting something. It's getting what you do not deserve. And we have received, according to the gospel, through the fullness of Christ, grace upon grace, undeserved gift upon undeserved gift. This is who God is. He's full of grace. So that overflows into our lives. He's rich in mercy. His mercies are new for us every day. Every day in your life, there's something that should happen to you that doesn't because God has mercy and he holds it back. Every day, there are mercies that are new is what the scriptures teach us. Every day. And he is great in love for us. So he's overflowing with love, which is why he does this. I can still distinctly remember my youth pastor saying, this book is a love letter written by God to you. Okay, well, where is that? Well, it's actually right here in verse 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. There it is written right there. And of course, it's in here a hundred other places in the Bible. The whole Bible is about God's love for us and how he's able to overcome these obstacles. Now, last week we had baptisms and part of the conversion from the, the spiritually dead existence into new life is renouncing those first three things. We renounce the sinful desires of our flesh. We renounce the systems of the world that are broken against us. And we renounce Satan and the spiritual forces of evil and darkness. We renounce all of that. And then we turn to God who's rich in mercy and affirm him three times. That's part of the liturgy. See, when Paul's describing this this type of deadness, he's not just saying you Gentiles were dead. He's saying we Jews also walked in this. And then he takes it even further and he talks about all people. So no one, the rest of mankind in verse 3. In Romans, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. There's, there's no class or group of people that escape this, this judgment right here, unless they turn to the gift that God has. Now notice in the middle there, in, in uh, verse 5, describing the love of God, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul just interjects right there, by grace you have been saved. By grace you've been saved. That's what saves. It's by grace that you've been saved. Through faith, actually. But he's saying, past tense, he made us alive together with Christ. In the Greek, it's actually a word that Paul made up. It's not really a word. He put a conjunction together. Made alive together with is one word that Paul kind of fabricated. And he does it three times. You were made alive together with Christ. You were raised up together with Christ and you were seated. All of its past tense. You were seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So you go from being a slave to the prince of the air, the prince of the power of the air, 
I think it's an odd way of speaking about the spiritual realm of this world. There are real spiritual forces, and by chapter 6, he's going to describe that. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, darkness. Think about that on the tail end of elections, how much people put their hope in the government. They're fighting. I mean, it's important. It's important. Don't get me wrong. But the battle's up higher. It's against principalities and powers. It's not just against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and powers. And people are enslaved to that and don't know it. And so he has, whereas before we were slaves to this power of the air, now we've been raised and seated in the heavenlies. Have been. It's done. This is what God has done for us. This is the kind of thing that you can, you can try to wrap your mind around. And it's so big and mysterious, but it also will carry you through this life. All of a sudden, it's so cosmic in scope that whatever immediately is happening in your life, you can say, wait a minute, I'm already made alive together with Christ. I've, I have been raised with him and I'm seated with him in the heavenlies. That is all secure. So for me, the kingdom of God is never in trouble. As, as one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard said, the universe therefore is a perfectly safe place for me. That's a frightening thought, but it actually spiritually is perfectly safe. That's already taken care of in Christ. But God, he's already done all of this for me. The greatest miracle is that I was dead and now I'm alive. I'm raised and I'm seated and secure in that. That's good news. God has done that. It's by grace you've been saved. It's the greatest miracle. It's, it's a bigger miracle than Paul healing sick people or uh, casting out demons or raising people, resuscitating people, I should say, back to life. This is resurrection life. This is a spiritually dead person is born anew and now they can see. The eyes of their heart have been opened. They can see that they were dead and now they realize they're alive. How powerful that is. So Paul goes on and begins to give commentary on it then. In verse 7, he says, this has all happened so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Getting saved, making the transition from spiritual death to spiritual life is just the beginning of something that is so good. In the coming ages, he's going to show how immeasurable are the riches of his grace. We've barely tasted it. If you're a Christian, you have barely tasted it. There is so much more coming. I can't describe it. I just believe what the word says. No mind has conceived it. It's that good, but it's immeasurable. I can't measure it. I haven't been there yet on the other side. But in the ages to come, he is going to reveal the riches of his grace. How awesome is that? Somebody should write a song called Amazing Grace. <laughs> right? He is so full of grace that it overflows. This passage defines salvation for us. What does it mean to be saved? It means I was dead, and now I'm alive, I'm raised, and I'm seated with Christ. And he makes it clear in this commentary that there's no boasting whatsoever. You know, I, I think about Lazarus in his tomb. A couple weeks later, somebody having dinner that doesn't know what's happened. Lazarus, what have you been up to? Well, I raised myself. I was four days dead in the tomb, and I decided enough of this laying around. I got stuff to do. I, so I got up and came. Nope, nobody who's dead does anything. It happens to them. Jesus raised him. So there's no boasting. Nope, this is not a work that we do. This is something God has entirely done for us. It is entirely his work. He has done it. So, so what's our response to this? Well, to the dead, to those of you and I suspect, based on numbers, there are some in here who are spiritually dead. If you're hearing what I'm saying, it's like a groggy, sleepy kid on a school morning. The alarm is going off, and you can kind of hear it. And dad's going, Ellie, get up. 
Ellie, wake up. You can kind of hear that voice coming. The Lord is calling you right now. If you're hearing what I'm saying right now, God is calling you. Wake up. Respond. And let me tell you simply how you respond. A, B, C, D. You admit that you are a sinner and you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You believe that Jesus died for your sins. You count the cost. Sometimes people like to skip over that, but let me be clear about something. You are not free in the sense of free to do whatever you want. You are being set free from the prince of the power of the air, a slave owner, and you are coming under the lordship of a good, rich, gracious, gracious, merciful Lord who has a different way that he wants you and expects you to walk in. Count the cost. The only way to count the cost is to be willing to give everything over to him. You know, you can't say, well, I'll give up to 50% of my stuff and I'll give up to half of my time or whatever. I didn't know God was going to call me into ministry when I became a Christian. The only way to count the cost is to say, I will give it all. So do that, and then you decide. Admit, believe, count, and then decide. I will follow you, Jesus, and tell him that in prayer. And then I want to add one second thing to it. I want you to make an appointment with me. I'd love to coach you a little bit. Think about going through something like heart surgery. Then there's rehab, and they send you to a specialist to help you rehabilitate. Once the heart surgery is done, you need to have somebody that can show you what the next steps are. I want to help you with that rehab. I want to help, help you walk into this new life, show you what it looks like then to live as somebody who's alive. To those who are living, to those of you who know exactly what I'm talking about, first of all, recognize that the Spirit of God in you is resonating, like I described. It's like, it's like there's, when you hear the gospel proclaimed, you go, the ring of truth. yes. That is true. That is good. I love that. That's right. That's a sure thing that you're alive, that you're awake, that the gospel has hit you and brought you to new life. So worship the Lord. Sing louder. As we say in the morning prayer, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. Be bolder in worship. This is really good news. Use the new life you have to give worship back to him, to adore him, to praise him, to to declare to him your love in return for his greater love for you. And then the work piece. So we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, no boasting here. These aren't works that save you. This is after the fact. This is verse 10. We've already come through the first nine verses. God prepared beforehand works for you to do, specifically for you. Somebody at the 745 service said he was sitting in the network class we, we did about spiritual gifts, and there was somebody that was part of the Kairos ministry, and he felt like in that moment he should go check this thing out. So he went on a Kairos weekend, and he just got back from last weekend, and he, he was gushing with how powerful it was. He felt like he was made for that ministry, and he was so grateful to be able to go in and serve those inmates and tell them the gospel and see God work in their lives. What are the works God has for you? This tells you that there are works. He's prepared these beforehand. Before you were even created, God had a plan for things he wanted you to do. Seek him for that. What is the work you are giving me to do, Lord? Help me find that. Now, as a church, we've set up a discipleship pathway of worship, belong, serve, and make disciples. These are more general, but they're biblical, and they'll put you on a path to start doing the right things, and then it can get nuanced to the specific ways that you're going to serve, the specific ways that you're going to belong, the specific ways you're going to worship, not just in church, but in the rest of your life throughout the week. 
And I pray that you would be part of waking the dead. I wasn't kidding about having conversations with people at work or in your neighborhood, asking them where they are on things, asking them their thoughts about God. So the Lord is waking people up and he's looking for believers to give witness, to talk about the good news, to give the hope of the gospel. And it starts with prayer. Say a prayer for those in your life that you, don't, that you think don't know the Lord. They might look good by worldly standards, but as you think through John Stott's little criteria there, they have no interest in God. They don't want to be part of the people of God. They don't care about Christ. They don't want, to, they don't want any part of that. There are all kinds of phrases that they say. I'm just kind of not into organized religion. That's, that's, there's, a whole, there's a whole list of phrases that those kind of people say. And a lot of times it's efforts to dodge the religion question. But when the Lord starts calling someone in response to prayers, then he starts to open up cracks in their thinking. Oh, that there would be someone there who knows the Lord to insert the gospel in that moment, to pray a little more, to say, well, what about this? Consider how good it is. And to tell your story. That's what we need to do. Worship and then the work. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to make it clear for us. Lord, I want to begin this morning by praying for anyone here who is coming awake, that your spirit would rush upon them, that they would feel the truth of Ephesians 2, of the good news. I pray that you would bind the lies of the prince of the power of the air so that only the truth of your spirit would come. And I pray that as they work through that A, B, C, D thing, they would have the courage to trust you as a good and gracious Lord. Bring new life, Lord. Also give them the courage to step forward and begin intentional discipleship. Lord, for those of us who've walked with you for some time or for a long time, I pray for an increase in our desire to worship you, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that indeed as our lips are opened, we would bring forth praise for your goodness. And I pray for those specific works that you have for us. Help us discern what those are. Lord, not only open our hearts, but open our ears that we would hear your Holy Spirit saying, this is the way, walk in it. Show us what that work is, Lord. I thank you for grace, and I thank you for Grace Church. And I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.